0: This edition of Eternal Leadership has been brought to you by Marketplace Rock, a business of intercessory prayer for businesses. Learn more at marketplacerock.com. Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, co-founder and co-host. Here's this week's interview by my partner, John Ramstead.
1: Welcome to the Eternal Leadership Podcast. And, you know, as Steve just mentioned, you know, our passion is just to equip and inspire leaders, just like everybody here listening, to just accomplish what you've been called to do. And I'm so excited to bring on our guest today, Major General Daniel York. Um, General, uh, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you, John. It's great to be with you.
1: Man, you have such a powerful and incredible story. Everybody out there listening, man, they're so much just uh, what you're about to hear is just going to be just so encouraging and edifying and just you know there's some amazing ups and downs in life lives and as you know as you've walked through it and shared with me your story over lunch man i was like we have to have you on the podcast so thank you so much for for making the time um you know i know you're 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 still currently in the army reserves correct as a major general
2: Yes, that's right, John. I'll retire in August, so I'm on the glide slope now.
1: <laughs> on the glide slope, and I know there's, you know, there. I don't think uh, retirement is a word that we could ever use to really, uh, you know, apply to you, Dan.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, my dad doesn't recognize the word retirement, so you're spot on. Well, you know what? You, now
1: I know you're uh, you've served as a, a pastor. Um, you've started some incredible nonprofits. Uh, First Cause. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, what you're doing at Vet Rest, another another one. And you know, you've been married and have three kids and three grandkids. And you know, uh, I would love for you just to share this journey that you've been on because if I as I listened to it before, man, I was just really struck with some of the things that you've, you've just gone through with grace, uh, Dan.
2: Well, thank you, John. All glory, of course, to God. Uh, it's kind of uh, fitting and ironic that I'm sitting at my desk in Colorado Springs because I was born in Colorado Springs. That's where my journey began, but I'd never lived in Colorado. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be now two years and, and counting in Colorado, but my journey began here. My parents, uh, Ron and Betty York, were uh, with an, an organization called the Navigators, which is known for uh, uh, training and they're strong in discipleship and helping people grow in their faith. So my folks, uh, my dad's been with the Navigators for over fifty years, wow. and he he is now in Florida with my stepmother. My My experience was moving, so like a military family, we moved every three years or less growing up. I lived in 11 different places in my 18 years at home, and uh, that was wonderful. We were in Southeast Asia. I lived in uh, Okinawa, Korea, Japan, went to high school in the Philippines. My mother died when I was nine of very, very bad cancer. And my dad remarried her nurse. And so with three kids and a new wife, uh, we moved to Georgia. This was about 1968. Uh, My stepbrother, Nate, was born. And then imagine a brand-new stepmother with four kids moving to Tokyo, Japan. How's that for stressors?
1: That's got to be a stressor. I've been stationed in Japan, and i got to tell you one thing about you know the Far East versus even being stationed in Europe is everything is so different and foreign from the culture that we grew up in.
2: <laughs> That's so true. So great experience living uh, in the Far East and and getting to know other cultures. That that gave me a huge appreciation for other people and and other countries and how God has made us uh, different, but in many ways the same. So a friend of my father's, uh, who, uh, who flew a helicopter for President Ford, he was an Army aviator, asked my dad while I was in high school what my plans were. You know, I was a typical high school kid. I didn't have a clue. And he shared with uh, dad about West Point. I'd never heard of West Point. I went in the library, checked out a book, and... Uh, was fascinated. It was about Earl Blake and the football team back when Army could play football. <laughs> 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 uh, so, my high school coach helped me a lot, and by God's grace, even though it was snail mail and and we were in a school where no one had ever gone to an academy before, God opened the door, and I was able to go to West Point. Which, John, that was truly uh, transformational for me uh, our class was amazing. Our class motto is strength as one, a lot of very strong Christians in my class. And so the fellowship was rich. The education was incredible. And I was over my head. Uh, my, my high school algebra teacher said I'd never make it because I didn't have a a strong math science background.
1: Now, were you going to high school in the Philippines? If I remember That's right, at
2: Faith Academy. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: So uh, Mr. Grodiger had taught a lot of students in Texas who had gone to the academy, so he knew what he was talking about. Fortunately, when somebody tells me I can't do something, that's a challenge. And so I rose to that challenge and, and said, Lord, if you'll get me into this place, I'll certainly do my best. And so even though I did fail calculus and had to go to summer school, and every year was a struggle, honestly, in the uh, math and sciences. I, I tell people all the time today, John, if I have a Bachelor of Science in Engineering, but if I built a bridge, we'd all die.
1: <laughs> well, at least you know where you, you know what your strengths
3: are.
2: <laughs> <laughs> They're not in math and science. So West Point was a great experience, uh, despite the academic challenges, made wonderful lifetime friends. Graduated in 1981 and went into the 101st Airborne Air Assault Division and had uh, tremendous experience there uh, as a uh, platoon leader and as a general's aide and then as a company commander. We deployed our unit to the Middle East as part of an operation that is enduring to this day. It's called the Multinational Force and Observers, MFO. And so the the mission was to keep the peace between Israel and Egypt, and so we had outposts all across the Sinai Desert. Hmm. On December 12th of 1985, so about six months into the rotation as we're ending it, I got a call from the intelligence officer, Ira Richardson. He said, come up to the headquarters right now. So I walked up to the headquarters, was met by uh, Mark Armstrong, who was a... Uh, another West Point classmate and good friend and believer. We walked into the headquarters. Ira said, sit down. And uh, of course, we didn't sit down uh, because we knew something bad was about to be said. And Ira said, uh, the flight, uh, the second iteration crashed in Gander, Newfoundland, and all 248 of our soldiers were killed. No survivors. 256 total people on that plane. That was absolutely stunning. Uh, Mark and, and, and I had a classmate, Brian Haller, who was on that plane. Brian was my best friend, unbelievable uh, fellow Christian and, and, and leader. I put all 24 of my married guys on that plane so they could get home a week early. The only reason I was not on that plane was the majority of my soldiers were still in the desert, and it's a military principle that the leader stays where the bulk of the of the unit is for command and so that's that principle and God's grace of course saved my life or I also would have been on that plane so that was pretty devastating my resignation was on that plane but no one knew it of course because of the crash and so when I got back rather than resign I felt like I needed to help rebuild uh, this devastated battalion and so I stayed on. Uh, I ended up having a fairly long company command, uh, about 21 months, which is unusual in the Army. And then in uh, 1986, um, I finally got out and uh-huh. you went know, and uh, the Dan,
1: you know, going through something like that, I mean, my goodness, uh, how do you even process, you know, a tragedy like that and, in, in, you know, just your faith and, you know, just... I know a lot of people out there that we've gone through some, you know, some difficult times. We're probably going to go through some difficult times. And, you know, what, you know, how did you, you know, move through that, you know, that period after the crash yourself?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I, I have to say that looking back, John, I think I was pretty numb. Mm. Uh, it was overwhelming. Uh, the 101st had never experienced a tragedy like that. In fact, the military had never experienced a tragedy like that where a plane went down and and that many people were killed. So, the whole community was stunned. And I, as I look back, back at it now, so so many decades later, I I really think the only thing that got me through that period was uh, just faith in the Lord and the realization that He was bigger than the crash and that he would, uh, he would sustain all of us, especially those of us who knew Him through that. There were a couple of things that were of comfort to me. Uh, one was that we had shared the gospel with every single soldier uh, that was deployed, uh, we had a tremendous chaplain, Troy Carter. Troy was on the plane and died. Troy was an amazing man of God. He logged more miles on his Jeep than anyone else in the task force going out and visiting soldiers. Between Troy and Brian and Mark and myself and the Bible studies that we led and the service, services there for chapel. We were very confident that everybody had an opportunity to hear the gospel. And many of our soldiers who'd actually accepted Christ as their Savior perished on that flight. Hmm. So that was one thing that helped me get through it was just the fact that, that we had shared the gospel and nobody perished without having the hope or the opportunity to put their trust in the Lord. The other thing that was interesting for me is I was going through a personal crisis in the desert. Uh, I knew that I wanted to get out of the army and join the navigators and go full time into ministry. In fact, I wanted to go back to Asia and be a missionary. That was my dream. The navigators in the Fort Campbell area wanted me to stay I was recruited by another navigator in San Diego to move, and I'm in this great moral quagmire of, what do I do? Do I go west? Do I stay? There were strong opinions voiced on both sides. In fact, the uh, vice president of the navigators weighed in and sent me a letter recommending that I stay because he had a uh, relationship with my dad and felt that he wanted to help and so I, I was out in the desert, driving in my Jeep, trying to figure out what the right course of action was. And I was reading, uh, you, you probably remember Larry Burkett.
3: Sure, yeah.
2: He's, he had a book out then called uh, the, the Coming Economic Earthquake, if I got that title right. And I was reading that, and, and in the process of reading the book, there was a passage that, that uh, Larry mentioned from Isaiah. And it was from Isaiah 43. Verse 4 says, because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. John, as I read that verse, I heard an audible voice say, I love you. Mm. And I, you know, tears just welled up uh, in my eyes. I looked over at my driver who's caked in sand, and he, he doesn't hear anything. But I heard God say, I love you. And This is amazing what follows. It says, I will give people in exchange for you and nations instead of your life. I didn't realize it at the time, but God spared my life. Uh, I would not be on that crash. Then it says, do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants. Now catch this. I'll bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, the north being Colorado, give them up. And to the south, which is where we were, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Uh, it was unbelievable. That verse, Now, of course, you know, we have to take scripture in context. And obviously the context did not, did was not, the book was not written for me at that time. But God used that passage to fit. In every single way, so that I knew exactly what I was supposed to do. I was to move to the West. Uh, Everything that uh, materialized uh, was obviously the Lord's hand at work, and He gave me a peace. So that was another thing that helped me through the crash, is I knew that God had a purpose for me and that He wanted me to move to California. And I think that probably helped some as well, if that makes any sense
1: no it does make sense and you know as you you know as you really kind of you know there's times when things like this happen right and our first reaction is you know god it doesn't make sense right because sometimes you know yeah. we just can't comprehend god's plan uh but it sounds like you know you uh use this going through this Uh, As a reason to move closer to God, to tuck into that relationship, to tuck into that love, that trust, that faith, instead of using it as something that actually that you allowed to be a wedge between you and that relationship.
2: You know, I think you bring up a good point. And I I think as as leaders, one of the most important truths we can hold on to is the fact that God loves us, because that sustains us through anything And I, I, um, I would experience that, uh, in really in, uh, spades much, uh, much later in a, in a fascinating way. So I'll explain that we moved to San Diego and, uh, I'm there to get trained by the Navigators. The training center shut down. Uh, all Everybody there, literally, on staff moved away. I called it the Ministry of Abandonment. Now, were you married at this point? Kathleen was my wife. Uh, mm-hmm. We married at Fort Campbell, so she was with me. Okay. Uh, Brian, our, our oldest, was born while we were in San Diego, and Sarah, our daughter, uh, so... When everybody took off, I'm sort of like, well, what am I supposed to do? Lord, I don't think you called me to San Diego to turn around and move again. So what, what's what's your plan for me? Uh, Georgia Drake, who was the wife of the navigator who invited us to come, said, why don't you go to seminary? So I could not think of any reason not to go to seminary, John. And <laughs> God provided the resources uh, amazingly. So that I was able to attend Bethel West, Bethel main campuses in Minnesota. They have an extension uh, in San Diego, and so I attended Bethel. Got a Master of Divinity. It was a wonderful experience for me. Uh, I was the the seminarian who was positive. He knew what uh, was going to happen in life, and so I was pretty confident that I would be going overseas as a missionary with the navigators. And in fact, my dad invited me to come to Southeast Asia and take the nation of of Vietnam or or Laos or one of those Southeast Asian nations. He was in Thailand with my mom at the time. And that was the culmination of, I mean, that's like handing somebody their, their ultimate dream. I remember when dad asked me that I was in Bangkok scouting for a mission trip we were going to do there. And he asked that question and I spent an entire night uh, unable to sleep, completely restless. And I realized in the morning, God was not giving me any peace. And so I told my dad, I don't know what's going on, but I can't say yes. And I came back home and uh, we had a party on the beach with a Sunday school class of about 25 young married couples we we were teaching. And my son, Brian, begin to walk robotically on the sand
3: mm.
2: and How this he? could be a he was three mm. so this could be a pretty detailed story but I'll cut to the chase uh, we knew something was wrong we took Brian in for an MRI and our mistake was they only did the MRI from the neck down uh, and that was because they were looking for other things and they couldn't find anything wrong and uh, then a couple months later Brian's eyes begin to cross we took him into an eye doctor, and the eye doctor said, you have to get him into a neurologist right now. So we, we got an immediate appointment. That must have been kind of a,
1: a, a scary message to hear, because that sounds like there was some real concern this doctor had.
2: Yes, yes, you're exactly right. And so we got into a uh, pediatric oncologist. They did an MRI from the, uh, the whole brain down, uh, the whole body. And I'll never forget, Valentine's Day, 1990, a doctor said to, uh, or 1991, a doctor said to Kathleen and I, Mr. and Mrs. York, you need to sit down. So here we go. You know, that's a message that I've heard before several years earlier. Not good. So I didn't sit down again. And he said, "Uh, I don't know how to tell you this, but your son has a brain stem glioma a tumor on his brain stem it's inoperable there's there's really nothing we can do he can't go through any kind of chemo uh, about all we could do is radiate it and he has about a five percent chance of survival oh wow what,
1: what was your first thought dan
2: i was devastated um I can't in imagine. fact i would say that when brian's tumor was identified uh I realized that I still had not really recovered from the air crash. Uh, I was pretty raw, but I didn't know it. And so I remember many a day driving and just weeping, uh, listening to, isn't it amazing how you listen to a Christian song on the radio station? It'll be exactly uh, the message that you uh, need to hear, but it's, it's almost too much. And so I, I would have these episodes of, because I, I love music, and, and I'd, I'd be listening to songs, and I'd just, I was really raw. In, anyway, we took Brian through 72 treatments of radiation. So for 36 days, uh, twice a day, I drove Brian back and forth from a clinic. He was an all-star. Yeah, imagine as a three-year-old, and then he turned four during the process, imagine laying perfectly still and not needing anesthesia while they administered radiation. Do you know any three-year-olds that can do that?
1: No, I don't think I could do that.
2: (laughs) I couldn't have done it. So the nurses loved Brian. He was very compliant. One day in the process of treatments, uh, we were driving home, and I have to just put a quick aside here. So we named our son Brian David. Brian died on the plane crash. He was named for him. And then Dave was my other best friend at West Point. Dave is still alive and here in Colorado Springs. So Brian is sitting in the back seat of the car, I am discouraged. And Brian from the back seat, as a, a three or a new four-year-old somewhere right in that time frame, from the back seat he says, "Daddy, it's okay. God will take care of it." Wow. I looked back. Did I just hear what I think I just heard? Mm-hmm. And I looked at Brian, and I realized that's the voice of the Lord. That That's amazing. The other thing that was amazing is how did Brian know I was discouraged? Because only Brian Howler, who died on the plane crash, he was the only person in my life who could say, what's wrong? Nobody else could tell. So I, I was absolutely floored. A couple months later— uh,
1: So I'm guessing as a you know, military officer, having gone through what you've gone through— You were probably pretty good at having that mask on, weren't you? Especially probably around your son. You wanted to be strong for your son,
2: didn't you? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I was unmasked. Mm. And, you know, it was was a period of time where I remember being in a church one Sunday, standing in the parking lot, just bawling, trying to figure this whole thing out. And, And I remember looking up to heaven and saying, God, I know that you made Brian and I know that you love him greater than I'll ever be able to love him. And if you take him, it's okay. I will still love you. But I sure don't understand. And in going through that process, John, uh, an interesting thing happened. I got a call from the seminary and uh, an Air Force retired colonel said, Dan, there's a church up in Oregon that wants to start a church. And they're looking for a church planter. Why don't you send them a resume? I thought, good grief, why would I do that? I'm in no position to start a church.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But because I respected him, I did. I went ahead and sent him a resume. Southwest Hills Baptist Church in Beaverton, Oregon, followed up on my resume and and asked me to come up and interview. In uh, this would have been uh, June now of 1991. That same month, uh, those couples that we were leading in Sunday school, uh, Joanne Kaiser said, why don't you come to our house and we'd like to pray for Brian. And so she was a worship leader and a wonderful gal. And so we went to, to Joanne's home and she and Richard graciously opened it up and several couples and us uh, sat around a, a living room. And we prayed for Brian, we wept, we sang worship songs, we prayed, we wept, we sang worship songs, and John, God came in the room. It was like you could touch God. It, his presence was so real. And, of course, we didn't know exactly what was happening, but except that something special was going on. That day, God touched Brian's tumor and healed him. So... I went on up to, uh, uh, and what to, kind of healing was that? Oregon. So, let me come back to that. Okay, uh, and, and I'll explain it uh, in the process of the story. It's pretty remarkable. So I, I fly up to Oregon and I interview, and, and it was like the easiest interview in the world because I'm I'm trying to convince them there's no way they want to hire me, and you know I'm I'm never pastored in my life, not really interested in pastoring. Wanted to go to Asia. That dream is shut down because of Brian's condition. Uh, My son could die at any time. So you really don't want to hire me. So (laughs) I go home thinking, well, I did a pretty good job of that interview. And I get back home, and they call me up. And they say, look, the number one candidate uh, turned it down. You're our number two guy. We think you're the the one God wants to do this. So we're going to hire you. So – Again, I, I didn't have anything else to do. I, I had no clue what we were supposed to do. I was completely at a loss at that point in life. And so we said yes. So we moved up to Oregon, um, July 31st of 1991. First thing we did is go see a pediatric oncologist. And Sarah, Dr. Sarah Brightman said to us, Mr. and Mrs. York, I'm sorry that the doctor in uh, California told you that Brian has a 5% chance of survival. He has 0% chance of survival. There's no cure for this, and, and he will die. He has a ticking time bomb, and it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Wow. Talk about a bedside manner, right? Yeah, right. But that was probably the best thing that she could have done for us, because she was honest, and we now knew that there was no hope and interestingly enough, we watched another young boy in, in the same town we moved to die in nine months, which is about the life sentence for someone with that tumor. Now, what happened, to answer your question, is they would have us do MRIs every three months and then every six months on Brian to to check the status of the tumor. And, John, what happened is the tumor's gone. There is no tumor. At some point in time, it completely disappeared. And and so, the
1: radiation, uh, did that have any effect on the tumor?
2: The radiation probably had an effect on the tumor, but really what the radiation did is it messed up Brian's hearing, mm. and it messed up his ability to walk. Uh, one leg is shorter than the other. Because of where they shot the radiation, like right in the ear level, it affected his growth. So here's what I think happened. I think God uh, pulverized the tumor miraculously when we were all praying for Brian. And in hindsight, I wish Brian had never gone through the radiation, but of course we didn't know at the time it was the right thing to do. But the, the bottom line is uh, Brian is turns 30 on April 28th and is uh, very much alive and very much al- in love with Jesus and a remarkable young man. Well,
1: praise God. What So when you first found—when you first— got this news. What was the first thought that you and Kathleen had?
2: I'm sure that I'm sure at the time it was, uh, why God, what, what, what's going on? Uh, this is our, our oldest son. Uh, what, what is it that we're supposed to learn and get out of this? And, oh, my lands, uh, what do we do with this uh, because of the severity? Uh, and again, I have to use the word numb. I, I think we were numb. Uh, and you
1: heard the news of the healing when that was first delivered to you. Where were you at that point?
2: Well, we knew something significant happened the day of during mm-hmm. the prayer time. You could just feel, and, God, and I, you could just I,
1: feel God's presence, couldn't you?
2: I, I literally, so let me give you a little bit more um, descriptive of that event we had invited a gentleman who had a ministry of healing to come and he was late he showed up to the room I don't know it must have been 30 45 minutes after we'd already been going and he said oh my goodness the presence of the Lord is so strong and then he shut he sat down and he shut up that's that's how how impactful God's presence was in that room yeah. so I walked out of there believing that God had, healed, Brian. I really did. I, I just didn't know what what it would look like. I knew something amazing had just happened. So we came uh, we went through this process of healing while we're hurting. and you know you can heal while you're hurt.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It's an amazing thing when when God does that. and and the way it works is, again, it's just, Lord, we trust you, we know you love us, and we know that no matter what happens, we're going to get through this because of you. And so again, another tragedy, but it's okay. God loves us, we're going to be all right. And so we work through that, and just, just as an interesting uh, point to this story, we moved to Colorado two years ago, well, a little bit more than two years ago, January of 2015, In March of 2015, Brian had a stroke, Mm. and that was a complete surprise. What we didn't realize is all that radiation did a number on his blood structure in his brain, and we didn't know he was a stroke uh, risk, and so Brian today uh, does not have good use of his right hand. He can't drive. Uh, He walks with a quad cane. But I, I got to tell you, John, Brian has an amazing faith. He's resilient. He ministers to people through all of this. And so, you know, you just take the bad with the good, and you realize that someday we're all going to be healed. We'll be with the Lord, and we look forward to that. Uh, but the challenges haven't gone away. The challenges are still there.
1: So, what, you know, looking back on this whole process— Dan, what, what really stands out for you in your own personal journey, you know, as a father, as a husband, as a, you
2: know, as a leader? Yeah. I, John, I think that uh, Colossians 118 is a unbelievable verse. It says, he, and the he, of course, being Jesus, is also the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. And I I think that the takeaway for me through all of life's experiences is that Jesus must take first place in everything. And when that happens, he wholly transforms our lives. He gives us the courage and the strength. To get through the storms, and He gives us the joy that we need in the journey. That's a real joy that no one can take away. And I, I think that's that's probably my takeaway. By the way, that's really that was the incentive for starting First Cause, our leadership nonprofit, uh, because everything's caused. The first cause, the primary cause, is Jesus, and without Him, there's just no hope. And, and so that really fuels me day to day. What's my first cause? My first cause is to serve Jesus, who needs to be first place in everything.
3: Mm.
1: Man, that's powerful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And, you know, as you have put Jesus first, right, and there's a lot of leaders and and people in business and in ministry and in government, you know, around the world listening in, you know, to this conversation, it's just been... Such an amazing testimony, you know, and you know what does that look like for people to really you know tap into that first cause dan
2: john i I have to say that there are days I don't put Jesus first, and
1: well that's it, it's a
2: it's its it's a challenge you know it's yep. it's uh it's because we we all have our our wills and our our desires and so I'll answer your question this way. I think that here's the key for me. I I very much strive to make sure that every single day I'm in the Word of God, that I'm spending time in Scripture,
3: mm-hmm.
2: because that's sort of an asthma check. And God's Word speaks to us. If we'll let it. And so, and and I'm not legalistic about it. You know, my my dad, I'll tell you, every single morning, today is no exception. He got up around four thirty or five thirty in the morning. and the first thing he did is read his Bible. He's got his journal and he's got a cup of coffee. and that's that was my growing up. Talk about a stable example of uh, faithfulness. I'm not as uh, legalistic, from the, and not that my dad's legalistic. He's just phenomenally disciplined. I'm not as disciplined as my dad. So I try to read the Word first thing in the morning, but sometimes uh, it, it'll be in the evening. But that kind of grounds me. But I, I'll just say it's a battle to put Jesus first every day because there's a lot of distractions and there's a lot of competition. And so for me, I have to focus on trying to get that time in the Word trying to work on conversation with the Lord and, and to talk to him frequently throughout the day and to listen. Uh, but it's not easy. Uh, if it was easy, I, I guess we'd all be good at it, huh?
1: That, that's very true. Now, t- tell us more about what First Cause and Vet Rest are all about, Dan. I know this has been a big passion for you because – um, you you uh, you went as a navigators, right? Were you, uh, I'm just curious, did you rejoin the reserves or go back on active duty? Because I know that the, those kind of intersect again.
2: Yeah, so I had no break in service, John. I, the day I left active duty, I signed up for the reserves, not having a clue, by the way, what I was doing. Okay. I just felt like it was an opportunity to make an income. And I knew as a navigator, income would be a challenge. So I did stay in the reserves, and uh, quick, funny story, I tried to quit again at year 14. Uh, I was pastoring and loving it, and it was pretty boring trying to keep an Army career going uh, through correspondence and, and other things. I just was completely bored. And so I s- turned in my resignation at year 14. I was down in Whittier, California. Uh, trying to get a point so that my year would be good. Uh, you have to get 50 points per year for it to count. And in the process, I had lunch with a high school classmate from the Philippines, Roger Lambert. And Roger and I are talking, and he said, Hey, Dan, how much are you going to make in retirement from uh, being a church planter? And I looked at him, and I said, Well, Roger, that would be a zero. <laughs> and uh, and he said, and You've got 14 years in the Army, and you're going to quit? And I said, yeah. And he said, you're an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) There's a good friend. There's a great friend. And so I said, now, Roger, why would you call me an idiot? And he said, Dan, think about it. You're six years away from having a pension. Why in the world would you turn your back on that and walk away now? Suck it up and drive on, soldier. And that was just a word from the Lord. And John, my resignation was lost, it was never processed. And so God ramped my, you know, I didn't know this was going to happen, but of course 9 eleven and and other things took place. Uh, I ended up getting promoted and going from one hard job to the next uh, and and having an unbelievable career, which will end with 36 years uh, this year, something I would never have predicted. In fact, I think that's a sense of humor from heaven that that I'm retiring as a major general from heaven uh, that's gotta be a plan from heaven because that's completely not on anything that I would have ever charted if you would have asked me uh, when I was a kid how my life would go so I've had the joy of, of being a reservist and and being able to uh, put the uniform on and serve our country but it's given me the freedom to do what I'd like to do best which is create and so Uh, In 2000, we started an organization called Encounter Ministries. We ended up changing the name to First Cause because First Cause was a much more robust and better name. Our mission is basically to work through divine power and wisdom to proclaim Christ, advancing one another to spiritual maturity. And that inspiration comes from Colossians 1, 28 and 29. I love, by the way, the Phillips version, which says, so naturally we proclaim Christ. And I, I think that's a f- great, great translation. So the the goal of First Cause is to proclaim Christ and to help people grow in their spiritual maturity. And that's a passion of mine. I am not a, like I'm not an engineer. I'm not a disciple maker, but I do love to uh, inspire and to share God's word and to motivate help motivate people. So we do a lot of work uh, in Africa. We're in uh, seven countries around the world uh, practicing leadership development by providing uh, training materials, by speaking and and meeting with groups. We have a phenomenal team in JOS, Nigeria. Quick aside, uh, JOS, J-O-S, actually means Jesus, our Savior. How cool is that? That's cool. So that's what we do with First Cause. Uh, I don't get to spend as much time with it as I'd like, uh, but it is uh, it is a, a meaningful ministry. In 2000, uh, 2012, I was sitting at my desk in, desk in Tigard, Oregon, and I received three emails. Uh, the Army, in its infinite wisdom, decided that Every time someone committed suicide, they would send an email to a general officer. So I was a, a brigadier general, and I'm, I'm lit- I literally received, John, three emails in the space of about an hour and a half of people who'd taken their lives. Mm. I remember putting my head down and just sobbing and thinking, what a waste of, of lies that God made. And this is not right and i was frustrated and i knew i needed to do something but i didn't know what and so i met with some good friends in oregon oregon by the way is one of the most unmilitary states in the union so it's kind of kind of again some more irony here and one of the things we determined is that we could not stop suicides but that there are a whole lot of veterans that are suffering from post traumatic stress we dropped the D, the disorder, because nobody needs to be labeled as having a disorder, and we just call it post-traumatic stress.
1: Yeah, I love. I, I love that uh, you guys do that.
2: So we decided, John, that what we would try and do, by God's grace and and with His help, because it's the only way we could do it, is to try and uh, recruit coaches to come alongside and work directly with veterans suffering from post-traumatic stress. Uh, the two it seems like the two main courses of effort to help veterans, one is to medicate them, and as you know that's that's addressing the symptoms but not the cause. And then the other method is to take veterans out on events like to ball games or hunting, fishing, and, and those are good and they actually do save lives because veterans find out they're not the only ones suffering. But again it doesn't address the cause. And so our our goal with VetRest, our mission, if you would, is to provide coaches who will help our nation veterans suffering from post-traumatic stress discover the cause of it, because if you know the cause, then you can can bear down with solution, and then help them heal in a supportive environment. And so and we're you, trying to get... you
1: uh train... I'm guessing that you're, there's a way to train your coaches to really work with somebody coming from that PTS and to really kind of find that source and then coach once you have some clarity on what's causing the stress.
2: You're absolutely right. Uh, we certify our coaches, uh, and the main focus, John is to help them learn how to listen, uh, build trust with the veteran. Cause if you don't have trust, they're not going to open up mm-hmm. and then, uh, provide spiritual, cognitive, emotional, and physical, uh, goals that will help them move to recovery.
1: And now are you, now there, we have a lot of coaches that listen in to this podcast. Uh, Dan, are you looking for people to be part of that coaching cadre to work with the veterans?
2: We sure are. Uh, it helps if they, <clears throat> excuse me, it helps if they've had post-traumatic stress because, you know, there's a, a real understanding, but it's not a requirement The main thing is that they've got to know Jesus because we want to be able to pray with with our veterans for healing. By the way, my confirmation for Vet Rest was I was meeting with a Navy corpsman, a SEAL, uh, Michael. I was at his home, and as I was getting ready to drive away from my time with Michael, he said, Dan, will you pray for me? Mm. And I said, sure, Michael, what's up? And he said, I'm having nightmares every night, and it's terrifying my wife and my kids. Every night. So I said, sure, Michael, I'd be glad to pray for you. So I, I put my hands on him and I prayed for him there in the parking lot and uh, got done. And he thanked me and I drove off. Two years later, we, we had moved to a, back to where we were originally from, back to Tigard. And uh, Michael lived in Newburgh. Two years later, we were doing a race to raise money for vet rest. And I called Michael to ask if he and Fawn, his wife, would help us. And he said, sure. He said, hey, do you remember two years ago when I asked you to pray for me? And I said, yeah, I do. And he said, Dan, I never had a nightmare after that, ever. So that was a huge uh, green light to me that we were supposed to do what we were doing, that God could actually heal someone immediately from post-traumatic stress. So, you know, that, that, that was the confirmation that I needed to move out smartly.
1: So if somebody knows, you know, a veteran out there who's listening, who's, you know, who has post-traumatic stress, you know, how do they plug into what you're doing at VetRest, Dan?
2: Great question. So go to VetRest.org, so V-E-T-R-E-S-T dot O-R-G, and that's an easy way to contact us. We have chapters right now in uh, Portland, Oregon is our strongest chapter. Colorado, we're getting one going Uh, wonderful gal. By the way, here's a gal you'll want to have someday uh, to interview, Katie Snyder, phenomenal Air Force colonel. Her story is incredible. Uh, She's leading our Colorado effort. Uh, Eddie Williams leads our Atlanta effort. Uh, We're trying to get one going in the D.C., Virginia area. And then our CEO, Rob Vici, is working on getting chapters in New York City and New Jersey where he lives.
1: And that's fantastic. And if somebody is a coach and says, man, this is this is a passion. This is something that fits what I'm called to do. And the folks that I want to serve, how could they get in touch with you and say, you know, what is what does the process look like to, you know, help some of these folks out?
2: Same thing, John. They can go to vetrest.org and there's a volunteer form on there. Um uh, that's a great way to get a hold of us. And then we can see geographically where they're located. And that actually helps us as we're kind of strategizing where we start up uh, chapters.
1: So if you guys go to vetrest.org and under the contact us, there's a, there's a tab that pulls down.
2: To the short farmers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the average age of farmers is about 58, my age. That's a ticking time bomb for food production. So we want to get veterans out on farms, teach them how to farm. So if you have any listeners that have farms or would be interested in helping place veterans on farms, that's the gift that keeps on giving because we can teach them how to grow healthy food, employ them, and it gives them a cause. So while they're working through their post-traumatic stress, they're in an actually therapeutic environment.
1: Oh man, this has been awesome. Um I wish we had a ton more time. So we've covered so much, Dan. So people that have been listening in, what are just maybe just a couple of key takeaways you'd like to just leave with people as we as we wrap up.
2: The the thought that comes to my mind is Psalm 40 verse 3, which says, "He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear" And put their trust in the Lord. I I think that the biggest takeaway for all of us is just this wonderful concept of worship. And if we will put God first, if we'll fear him, revere him, and walk after him, um, many will see and they'll be amazed and they'll put their trust in the Lord. And what a legacy. If we can do that, that, that's what it's all about.
1: Uh, I so agree. And, you know, like everything else in our life, right, the power of, you know, that relationship with Jesus. And, you know, I've, I've known a lot of veterans, worked with veterans with post-traumatic stress and that spiritual healing. Like, I'm, I'm so glad you're, you know, you're, you're, the coaches you're working with have that personal relationship, because I think, or in my experience, that has been one of the most powerful ways for people to have just permanent you know, healing and breakthrough. And, you know, in, this is something that holds so many people back. And it's such a problem. I think the last stats I saw was there are 73 people a day of our veterans, active duty and veterans, that try to commit suicide. And 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 23 people a day um, are succeeding, unfortunately. And those are lives that that, you yeah. know what, with one caring person connecting those folks of their faith, finding that cause, uh, the, the implications of just serving this community are just so, so huge. And thank you so much for what you and the team are doing. And I would love to help and volunteer. I'm going to, I'm going to fill out the volunteer tab with you guys and I'm going to donate to vet rest, uh, specifically from our company. And, and, uh, I just truly thank you for what you're doing, Dan.
2: Well, John, I just want you to know you are a blessing, and I praise God for you and the calling God's given you, and it's been a great honor and a joy just to spend this time fellowshipping with you, so thank you.
1: Well, thank you, and, you know, hey, uh, I encourage everybody out there listening, you know, connect with, it's firstcause.org on the leadership work that you're doing, Dan, and then vetrest.org. If anybody out there knows somebody who... Um, is currently dealing with post-traumatic stress or you'd like to be a coach and you'd like to work with that community please plug into what you've heard here and you know hey share this episode with somebody you know this is the kind of uh, powerful this is the whole goal of what we're doing in the podcast uh, Dan is just connect to people to the resources the tools the relationships that they need you know, to, to move forward in their lives. And this is exactly what we've been talking about today. And thank you for sharing just so, with such vulnerability and, and, uh, man, this is one I'm going to remember for a very, very long time and sure appreciate you.
2: Well, you're gracious brother. Thank you. And again, glory to God.
0: Thanks for listening to Eternal Leadership. Be sure to check the summary of this MP3 for any important links and a link to the show notes for this episode. As I said at the top, this edition of Eternal Leadership has been brought to you by Marketplace Rock. Is there something that feels like it's blocking your business? The team at Marketplace Rock partners with you and unearthing those things that could be holding you back through intercessory prayer. Just earlier this year, Vicki told me while she was praying, she heard from me, to water the seeds. I knew exactly what it meant and got some business out of it. Another time she was praying and accurately described one of our dogs who turned out needed medical attention. John and I can't recommend the team at Marketplace Rock highly enough. In fact, our phone calls with them are the highlight of our week. Visit them online, MarketplaceRock.com or listen to either of Amy Everett's past interviews with us, episodes four and 66, MarketplaceRock.com. For John Rampstead, I'm Steve Ryder and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership.